Hello. We're about to begin our study here in Second Samuel uh, chapter 2. Uh, we left off with verse 7 last week, and we'll start with verse 8 the, this week. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of, the Saul, of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth's son, Saul's son, excuse me, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. At the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, the servants of David, uh, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the, of the pool and other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of, of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grabs his opponent's opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so they fell down together therefore that place was called the field of sharp swords which is in Gibeon so there was a very fierce battle that day and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David now the three sons of Zeruiah were there Joab and Abishai and Asahel and Asahel was a was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Azahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold on one of the young men, and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Alma, which is before Giah, Giah, or Giah, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit, and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not... Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be till and then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossing over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanam. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, 
And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of by Ahinim, Ahinim the Jezreelites. His second, Chileab, by Abigail, the wife or the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Malchah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggit. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a doll's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you should not see my face unless you bring, first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to bought her him weeping behind her so Abner said to him go return and he returned now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying in time past you were seeking for David to be king over you now then do it for the Lord has spoken of David saying by the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the land of the Philistines and the hand of the of all their enemies and Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go. 
and gather all Israel to my Lord King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. At that moment, uh, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David and Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he has already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab, one who has his discharge or is a leper, who leans on his staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into feathers. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all the Israel understood that that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today. Though anointed king and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron. He lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of ben Rimon, the Beeratite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth also was part of Benjamin. Because of, because of Beeratites fled to Githim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came 
from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Bereatite, Rechab, and Bana set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house, as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his, lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king to his day, a uh, king this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Beeratite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house, on his bed, therefore, Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Well, a lot of conflict going on there and. Do I have entitled this right here, Finding God in Darkness? It's finding God in the middle of conflict here as well. There's an old story of a young man who was set up on a blind date, and he was terrified, I'm sure. He had been on blind dates in the past, and they had not worked out uh, all too well. He had learned from experience that if she wouldn't let him see her in advance, she must not be much to look at. He expressed his concern to the couple who was setting him up. Uh, they said, if you get there and, and do not find her attractive, fake an asthma attack and say you have to go home. He thought this was a brilliant idea, so he went with it. When he arrived at the door, he was all ready to start coughing and wheezing. When she opened the door, he was shocked to see a gorgeous young lady. He was excited and nervous as he introduced himself, and then he extended his hand. He was saddened when they were unable to go on the date because she had an asthma attack. Rejection is difficult, and oftentimes rejection and uh, rejection can lead to conflict. Many congregations and many uh, church conflicts are a result of someone's idea that got rejected by the leaders, by the, the shepherds or the elders. Conflict in marriage is often because or comes in marriage because a spouse rejects the plan of his or her uh, mate. None of us is exempt from conflict. As we read in Second uh, Samuel chapter 2 verses 5 through 7, we see that David sends a heartfelt message to the men of Jabesh Gilead. 
He is sharing in their grief over Saul's death. Remember, we we saw that last week and letting them know that he is now their king and will treat them with love and respect. It is a heartfelt message, but even the most heartfelt messages are sometimes rejected. This one was no exception. The conflict that ensues that we read over uh, that covers Second, Second Samuel chapter two verses uh, chapter two chapters three and chapter four. If these chapters, as I refer back to what um, something that um, Scott has has talked about in First Samuel, if these chapters were made into a movie, it probably would be rated R simply for all the violence that goes on there. Abner commander of Saul's army, decides that Ishbosheth needs to be king. The result of that decision was civil war. Imagine the two groups, David's men uh, and Ishbosheth's men, divided up on each side of what amounts to be a very large well. Abner decides that there should be a fight between sides. Twelve men are selected from each side and the battle begins. Um, for sake of abbreviation and without going all through it again, let's just say that Abner got more than he bargained for and was being chased down by David's men, as we saw. What unfolds in the verses to come is a bloody battle that, according to uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, lasted a long time. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul, as we read, grew weaker and weaker. As chapter 3 continues, we saw that Abner was trying to play both sides, and as a result, he loses his life. As the drama continues to unfold, two of Ishbosheth's own men then take it upon themselves to assassinate him. When David finds out that they have done this, he has both of them killed. I was wondering, did they not know what happened in the past, the recent past at that? This then frees David to take over a king, uh, as king of a united Israel. Now, he didn't send and he, it was he didn't send those men there and it wasn't his intention for that to happen, but he saw opportunity for him to be able to lead as I said, united Israel. Needless to say, in this case, rejection led to conflict and this conflict got very ugly. No matter how many times I've read over this um in my own studies and then also f- to prepare for this study it is an ugly conflict most of us have been a part of ugly conflicts family conflicts work conflicts or even church conflict and although these conflicts don't normally get this ugly well i haven't seen them that ugly maybe you have they can get ugly nonetheless one of the most difficult things about conflict is our tendency to lose sight of god And although God is not mentioned much in this text because of all the violence that is going on, we see that David and his men never lose sight of him. We also learn from this text, uh, I believe, some very vital lessons for resolving conflict. The first lesson we learn is when we face conflict, God needs to be involved. Joab wanted to make sure that God was a part of the solution. Even Abner involved God in the process, and we see that in chapter 3, verse 9. So often in times of conflict, we, like Abner, we try to play God. We try to be the solution. Abner used God's name as justification for what he was doing, but it was obvious from the result that God was not involved in his action. 
or his actions. How many times do we hear people use God's name as a justification for ungodly actions that lead to conflict? In the end, the result is the same. God will deal with them severely. The second vital lesson we see in resolving conflict is that when we face conflict, we need to avoid playing both sides. As you read this story, we see what appears to be Abner making an alliance with David in verse 6 of chapter 3. But upon closer investigation, it appears that Abner was playing both sides so that whichever side won, he would still be commander. Have you ever met people like that? No, I have. They really aren't concerned who wins. They just they just want to make sure that they are aligned with the one who does. We see it in the, the political arena. We see it in families. And we see it in the church. Two men who lived in a small village got into a terrible dispute that they could not resolve. So they decided to talk to the town uh, sage. The first man went to the sage's home and told his version of what happened. When he finished, the sage said, you're absolutely right. The next night, the second man called on the sage and told his side of the story. The sage responded, you're absolutely right. Afterward, the sage's wife scolded her husband. Those men told you two different stories and you told them they were absolutely right. You told them both that. That's impossible. They can't both be absolutely right. The sage turned to his wife and said, you're absolutely right. When when in the middle of any conflict, the only side that is right is God's. When we face conflict, we need to accept what God wants, even if it is not pleasant. David was willing to accept whatever God wanted, even if it meant starvation. Chapter 3, verse 35. Sometimes conflict resolution is not pleasant. The consequences are tough because even if we think we are in the right, we often make mistakes. It all points back to doing what God wants, though. What God wants may not be fun and it may not be pleasant. In Matthew chapter 18, we are told to confront someone who has sinned against us. There's nothing pleasant about this. It is easier to just ignore it and hope it goes away. But it doesn't really go away. If we do not do what God wants, the conflict will only grow. Yet, if we we do what God wants and gain a brother or gain a sister back, not only have we made a difference in his or her uh, eternity, but possibly in our own. The third lesson, the vital lesson we learn in resolving conflict is that when we face conflict, Never take the place as judge. The most violent and gory part of the story happens when Rechab and Bana take it upon themselves to murder Ishbosheth. David may not have agreed with Ishbosheth, but he respected who he was. He was not an authorized he was not an authorized killing, but they took David's place as judge and paid dearly for it. This is one of the most violent passages in all the Bible. But it goes to show that when you take the king's place or when you try to as judge, it does not end well for you. Throughout the New Testament, Christians are warned not to take God's place as judge. Matthew seven twelve, James 2, 
12 through 13 and Romans 2, 1 through 3. The fact is this. We sometimes criticize others unfairly. We don't know all their circumstances or their motives. Only God is aware of all the facts and is able to judge people righteously. Now, this is not to say that anything I've just said and what the scriptures are saying there in Matthew and James and Romans contradicts John 7.24. We still have a responsibility to have righteous judgment. That's for another lesson. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus shares a pattern for conflict resolution. And in, in his pattern, there is promise for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Matthew eighteen twenty. When we follow the plan the master has laid out for us concerning conflict, he is there. But the flip side of this, of that is this. If we do not follow his pattern, we are on our own. We learn from Abner that resolving conflict without God in the picture does not have a happy ending. Now, as I did last week, I have some questions for you. I give you a moment to write those down and get ready for our next uh, part of our lesson here. I like to think that these questions and the ones that come out the the second part of this lesson are all personal, personal questions you need to ask yourself and be truthful. How can you be guilty of trying to play God when conflict arises? Let's remember we are not God. All right, moving on to chapter five. It says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel <coughs> excuse me, out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David can't come, cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by, the, by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall, come and not, shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on, went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons. And they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. 
And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephag, Japhia, Elishama, Elida, and Eliphalet. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to, the, to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines who so Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies uh, before me, like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley at Raphim. Um, they, therefore, David inquired of the Lord and said, "You shall not go up. Circle around them and come up, um, and come up upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly." For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by, by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, or Heo, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on string instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told, King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark 
of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might when David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the, of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in his heart, in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and it set it in the, its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he uh, distributed, uh, distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maid servants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, before we go on with this lesson, I think it needs to be said at least i'm going to say it, that not everything that david did was pleasing to god i'm sure there are some that should be thinking about david had all these wives he had all these concubines he's doing all these things that are wrong and and we haven't even gotten into even more of what he's going to do but we know that god can use um Anyone that he chooses to further his will, just as he did with Pharaoh, um, at, at, that was uh, the Pharaoh that we read about with the Israelites when they were in Egypt. And we see that Pharaoh even had a choice to do what was right, but he decided not to. Um, and so this is not really part of the lesson that I'm presenting today. But I thought I would just mention that everything that David, David does it's not always right. And we can clearly see that even in this lesson. James McInerney, in his book, The Source, tells the story of a man named Orbel. Orbel was a farmer living about 2200 BC. He worshiped two little G gods. One was the, the god of death and the other a goddess of fertility. One day, the temple priests tell Orbel, to bring his youngest son to the temple for sacrifice um, if he wanted to have good crops. Herbal obeys and on the appointed day drags his wife and his son to the scene of the boy's religious execution. After the sacrifice of Herbal's boy, uh, the priest announced that one of the fathers would spend the next week in the temple with a new temple prostitute as an offering to the goddess of fertility. It all sounds terrible. 
Robel's wife is stunned as she notices a desire written more intensely across her husband's face than she has ever seen before. And she is overwhelmed to see him eagerly lunge forward when his name is called. The ceremony being over, she walks out of the temple with her head swimming, concluding that if he had different gods, he would have been a different man. Well, it seems that whenever the topic of worship is taught, we have a feeling of curiosity as the class or sermon begins. And then we may even feel a bit of nervousness because we are fearful of what will be said. Yet, worship is an act designed to create community and not controversy. This community is with other Christians, members of the Lord's Church, Church of Christ, but more importantly, with God. Worship should change us. My question to you today is, does it? If not, maybe we are too much like Urbel. If we worshiped a different God and there's only one, if we worship some idol, we would be different people, surely. It has been said that a political figure's first official act in office defines their time of service. Well, in Second Samuel chapter 5, we see that after his anointing by Samuel and years of trial, adversity, and conflict, David is anointed king over all of Israel. In chapter 6, we notice that David's first official act as king of Israel was restoring the proper worship of God. But as David tried to worship God, he discovered something that many of us know. Sometimes worship can be challenging. Many come to the church building on Sunday after just completing a week of trials and disappointments and adversity. Then we are challenged to dismiss all the cares of this world from our minds. It's a nice thing that we try to say before worship starts, but, you know, in all actuality, it is hard to do that for some people. As David tried to worship God with all of his might, several things happened that could have drawn his mind away from worship. As we just um, discovered through the readings that we did in chapter 5 and chapter 6, these distractions and how David overcame them, we should learn how we too can find God in worship. We have to put forth effort when it comes to worship. For David to worship God properly, it required the recovery of the Ark of the Covenant. This recovery would have required 30,000 men, a new cart, and a 50-mile trek through the mountains, carrying an ark that could not be touched. Yet David recognized the great significance of the ark as God's earthly throne. As a true God-following king, he wished to acknowledge um, God's kingship by restoring the ark to a place of prominence in the nation. When one considers the efforts put forth by David to worship God, the question must be asked, well, how strong is my effort to worship? Would I make great sacrifices? Would I travel 50 miles by foot or by car for that matter? As we attempt to answer these questions, it is good to be reminded of what it says in Romans 12:1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
It is also good to be reminded that God watches us and watches over us 24-7. He sees the effort that you put in on your job, in your recreation, and in your stuff. And he sees the amount of effort you put into him or, or the lack thereof. Need we be reminded that God is a jealous God? Yet even when we understand the point of Romans 12, 1, there will be sometimes or times that the effort to worship becomes difficult and to live our lives in the pattern that God will have us to live. Things will happen along the way that will not win out of yourselves. Secondly, in Second Samuel um, chapter 6 and verse 6, it says there that uh, Uzzah reached out and touched the ark, which is described as an irreverent act. Uzzah's intent may have been good, but he violated the clear instructions God had given him concerning the ark. In uh, Numbers chapter 4, we find that in verse 15, and when Aaron and his sons were have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, and they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. I can tell you right now, Uzzah was not a son of Kohath. Son, he was a son of Abinadab, and they were not of that line, or of the line that Aaron came from, or didn't come from the line of Aaron. So, already we had the wrong person, one of the wrong people, um, trying to carry the ark. Getting back to the story here, though, can you imagine how David felt in the middle of what should have been a glorious moment? Tragedy strikes. Besides having effort in worshiping God, we need to have endurance. David's initial reaction was resentment. He said he became angry. His attempt to honor the Lord had resulted in the display of God's wrath. David was disappointed with the apparent unfairness of God. As a result, he was reluctant to continue his trek with the ark and left it in the household of Obed-Edom. Yet, because of God's presence in his house, Obed-Edom was richly blessed. We can almost see a light bulb going off over David's head after some time as he realized, when God is present, I can be blessed, even in disappointment. So he and his men went to the house of Obed-Edom to, to retrieve the ark. Well, aren't we, aren't we like David sometimes? When we hurt and very often the last thing on our mind is serving God or worshiping him or being around his people. Yet when we are hurting, a journey into the presence of God is exactly what we need. It may be difficult. It may be a difficult journey. And you may have some reservations because of your disappointments, your frustrations, your, your anger. However, when you finally find yourself in the presence of God, you will be richly blessed. We must also have enthusiasm when it comes to serving God and worshiping him and, and living our So, uh, having a, as the scripture says, presenting ourselves a, uh, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, to God. It is the phrase that stands out in verses 14 and 15 is all his might. Although dancing may not be part of our worship assemblies today, 
Worshipping with all of our might certainly should be. It is no secret that many congregations have been involved in, well, you can't do that and you can't do this type of uh, language in wars and conflicts. One can't help but wonder, though, if we would have experienced all the controversy we have in, when it is concerning worship, if we would have been using that same energy to worship. When the Bible speaks of worship, it uses words like passion, spirit, tremble, bow, cry out, shout, awe, reverence. We are called to worship from the very core of our spirits. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now we must put a caveat here though. When we worship with enthusiasm, we may receive some criticism. David's wife, Michael, despised David in her heart when she saw his outward display of worship. She called it uh, undistinguished and uh, undignified and, and vulgar. David responded by simply saying, it was before the Lord. Now, people may not refer to our worship as vulgar. Maybe they do. Don't know. But enthusiastic worship is often labeled with terms such as distracting, disorderly, or even self-seeking. When David heard the criticism, he simply said it is right to celebrate and that he would continue to do so. Now, on the flip side of this, we need to be careful that we are not like Michael. Often we may see people worshiping in a way we are not accustomed to, and I'm talking about in the Church of Christ, and become critical about investigating what the Bible truly says about what they are doing. We may see somebody raise their hand or praying with their eyes shut, or somebody might even bow and get on the floor and put their knees on the ground. We may be critical of them. When we start binding where God has not, we become like Michael. Michael could have used her fussing energy to join in worship. And if she would have done that, David's worship style would not have been such a distraction and she would not have been punished for her attitude. Now, the questions that will follow will will kind of address this uh, and what we're talking about is for you to answer. Why is there such an emphasis, though, in the Bible on worship? Is God an egotist? Does he constantly have to be told how great he is in order to get satisfaction? No. Our praise does not make God bigger or more glorious except in our hearts and in our eyes of man. Nor does our lack of praise diminish his honor and glory except in our own hearts and in the eyes of man. He is God. He is all-knowing, all-being, and all-powerful. What is man that God should be mindful of him? God doesn't command us to assemble for worship so much because of what worship does for him, but rather for what worship does for us. Consider this in Mark 2.27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God needs nothing from us, but we need everything from him. David understood that. David realized how desperately he needed God. So he was willing to put forth the effort and endurance and enthusiasm needed in worship. Again, these questions that I have before you 
our personal questions, you know, and I really would love for you all to answer them. Um, not, not for me, but for yourself, speaking directly to you. Are you truly worshiping God in the assembly? Or are you just going through the motions? Before you even just like quickly answer that question, stop and, and think through this question. Should we use David's worship to, to God as an example of how we should and can worship now? And the reason why I say explain on there, because that could be a twofold answer there. I know today that there are many that will look to David and say, well, David did that. So why can't we? These are questions that we should be able to answer if we are students of the Bible. Thank you all for joining us, joining with me uh, today. Next week, let me see what we will be working on. And I, and I truly hope that you will read the chapters um, before and after of what we read. Next week, we will be reading chapter 7 through chapter 9. Chapter 7 through 9. Finding God and his promises and finding God in his kindness. As we continue our study on our rock and our fortress, finding God in Second Samuel. You all be blessed.